I know you. You are afraid to speak up. You are scared of what other people think of you. And you blame yourself for what happened to you. I know how it feels because I've been there. If you found me, I'm so grateful you are here. This podcast will give you hope. And I'm your host, Anna Maidanova. And I'm going to hold your hand and provide the guidance. It's time for you to find your why and turn your experience into your biggest power. This is your time now. So lock your door, put your headphones in and enjoy. Michaeline Risley, welcome to the world's best trauma recovery podcast. I am honored to be here. Thank you. Michaeline, I would love to start off with a question. Why telling your truth is so important? Oh, it's a great question. Telling your truth is, is critical for healing. It's, uh, it's actually taking your experience, your trauma out of the shadow and bringing it to the light. For me, I found that without speaking your truth, it's almost like skipping steps and that it's, it's critical to the healing of the mind, the body, the soul. But uh, isn't it working just, you know, shut it down and forget and move on? Oh, no, no. I tell you an interesting story because when you shut it down, you're closing off a very big part of who you are. And that, that it's an interesting situation because I do find those who experience trauma have very high pain tolerances, very, because they shut down so much of their body. Um, part of when I realized that I needed to start speaking up and explore this and get to the bottom of my trauma, I was out West with some friends and we were up playing at the Hollywood sign and we all got back in the car and I had to jump on someone's lap in the front and my hand got stuck in the car door and it shut and uh, I couldn't feel it. It's like, I said to one of the guys, please open the door, open the door. And they started teasing me. Uh, Davey is his name. Why, why do you want to open the door? And I'm, I just said, just open the door, Davey. And when they opened the door, they could all see how crushed my hand was. And everyone started screaming, but me. And I said, oh, this is interesting. I'm not feeling it. And this is, to me, that was an incredible moment where I said, okay, this is, this is you shutting it down. This is you saying, okay, it happened. Forget about it. Move on. And you won't survive if you do this. Michaeline, I resonate with you so much. I have a story about uh, pain. Tell me, please. In 2018, uh, me and Laban, I got pregnant with my, with my fiance. And unfortunately, it turned into ectopic pregnancy, the first one. And we tried methotrexate. We tried it once. We tried it second time. And it didn't work. And we were coming to the hospital in and out, in and out, in and out. You know, they were saying, uh, if you have a bit of pain, come. But for me, 
this pain wasn't so painful. When they were asking me, so what is your pain out of 10? I was like, two. They were like, okay, go home. It wasn't two. So yeah. I, I remember I was coming home and I felt a bit of pain and I was like, whatever, as usual. Right. And then I came home and the pain was rising and rising and rising. And I just lie down on the, on the bed in a fetus position. And I could feel that something was happening. But you know what? For me, it wasn't a big deal. And I just remember I lie down and it was, it started to be painful. When I, every time I would breathe, I felt like a thousand knives in my stomach, like going deeper and deeper and deeper. So I was breathing maybe once in two minutes. And then I, I took, I remember they gave me Indon, this very strong painkiller. You're supposed to take one tablet every six hours. But I remember I took one, didn't help. I took a second one, didn't help. In maybe 20 minutes, I don't know how much time was it. I took third, didn't help. Oh, and then I took three tablets. And then I bust, bust out. <laughs> I bet. In the morning, I woke up. I called my work. I was late already. I woke up. I, I said... I can't come to work. I don't feel well. So I spent a day at home and under those painkillers, it was, you know, I was fine. So what was happening? I was bleeding internally because my tube ruptured. And it is painful experience, but it wasn't so painful. Seven days later, I just felt that something is happening with me because I was pale like a wall, white wall. I slow. I was so slow. I was still going to work, oh and God. then I passed out at work. And they were like, "Ina, you need to check yourself out." They didn't know what was happening. I didn't tell anyone about ectopic pregnancy. When I came to the hospital, they checked my blood pressure. It was okay. They did ultrasound in back in Melbourne, he said, I can't see anything. I was like, there is definitely something is happening to me. Next morning, I went to do the ultrasound with the, with the doctor. She looked at me. She looked at the screen. She said, oh my goodness, girl, how are you still alive? I had nearly six milliliters of blood in my tummy and 10 by 10 centimeters uh blood cloth which is like this oh my god oh my god and it didn't affect your blood pressure or any of that i think maybe doctor made a mistake because when they checked my blood pressure it was very low next morning anyway i can resonate with those um when you don't feel pain at all i was like whatever it is a, definitely a trait of those who suffer from trauma, particularly women. And I realized it's not a good thing because mm-hmm. I got scared. I really got scared. They told me a bit more and you would die from <laughs> losing the blood. Anyway, Michaeline, where is your trauma is coming from? 
Um, boy, I've had a lot in my life. Um, I was sexually abused as a child, um, father, brother, cousin. And then I spent years working through that uh, to forgiveness and healing. And then um, I use that as a, to fuel my activism. I've worked for decades on rape, abuse, and human trafficking. And so I had a nonprofit and a for-profit where we used uh, video to create social change. I've done um, two documentaries. My first uh, was set up as a short film on child sexual abuse in America. We did the first national curriculum viewing guide on child sexual abuse. And then my last film where I went over to Zimbabwe and I profiled a remarkable, a remarkably courageous woman, Betty McConey, who um, in many parts of the world, men are counseled if they rape a virgin, they'll cure their AIDS. And so obviously not only is that false, but Betty was actually rescuing these kids. And so um, when I was over there, the dictator at that time, Robert Mugabe, Robert Mugabe threw me in prison. And I was lucky enough, my husband had hired human rights lawyers to get me out. And I, there was a guy who helped as well, who I met on Facebook, who had a friend at the CIA. So I did get out. Um, and then uh, Mugabe sent a couple of his thugs to try to hurt me in the U.S. a couple of times. And then I got chased by human traffickers. So, you know, those are traumas. <laughs> Is that enough? <laughs> it's more than enough. Michaeline. It's wow. Wow. With all the work you, you are doing, there are still people who don't want this message to be passed on. And unfortunately, sexual abuse is the only abuse, is the only story we are not allowed to talk in a society. I would agree. And it's also sexual abuse is the leading indicator that you will be trafficked. So it's, it's, we look at these as very separate things, but they're not, it's a linear line. It's, you know, sexual abuse, date rape, human trafficking. They're all on a continuum. I want to talk about this a bit more, but I want to go back to your story Mm -hmm. when you were sexually abused. Michaeline, what was your first experience when memories started to come up? Come back. So I had memories over the years, but I had not connected to them so that I could, I could know them intellectually, but I did not connect heart and head until I experimented with MDMA in layman's terms, that's ecstasy. But basically in the United States, MDMA was used for family therapy because it would take down the nerve receptors in a brain and you would have your memory. So I did not do it in a controlled environment. And so I came out of an experience with MDMA with suddenly a a whole bucket full of memories connecting to my heart and I didn't know what to do with that. So that's when I was, I found a good therapist because I I was in a tough situation. I think finding a good therapist is very important because when my, my memories started to come back and I couldn't remember what was happening to me so I sort of knew but I wasn't thinking about it until two years ago three years ago when I started to do my public speaking uh, training 
because I, I couldn't understand why I can't say a word, why I'm so quiet, why I'm so shy. And my trainer was also sexually abused. And she told about her story on the first meeting. And it triggered my memory. I was like, oh, geez. yeah, wow. And then it just opened up the Pandora box for me. And I was like, this is me. And I remember all those memories started to coming back. All this pain and shame, like a huge tsunami. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to deal with that. What was your way of dealing? What helped you to go through this? Well, the coping mechanisms, not necessarily good for you. Um, So I had a lot of coping mechanisms. I would eat to fill that hole. I was, you know, I had body dysmorphia. I had extreme anxiety. But I think looking at it now from an aerial perspective, having spent so many years in this, I think that coping mechanisms now would be meditation, exercise, self-care. Those were critical, but it took me a long time to get there. And, and I would also say that I look back at my years in therapy with a little bit of a different perspective that I do believe that you can get through trauma without years of therapy. And I think sometimes therapy can also re-traumatize you. So I think there's a lot of new techniques and methods to help you get there faster. But you give us an example of one technique, what people can do. Yes. So I think somatics is one really worth it. It's really, it's, it's, the psychotherapy or counseling, those kind of therapies are in the mind. You have to, the trauma and the memory are at the cellular level. And so somatics healing, um, EMDR, there's so many things out there. And I think it really depends on your individual desires. You have to, you have to want to heal. As well. yes, I think wanting to heal because you know there's work. That's the, I mean, it's work and it's painful. But I also think it can be very confusing out there as to what path to take. So you have to really take your time and value your own thinking and feeling about it. That's, that's you know, as you and I both probably know, that's not an easy task. Mm-mm especially as we tend to, as survivors, become pleasers. And it's always the external perspective versus ours. So I think probably the most critical lesson I learned is to stop looking for external validation or stop looking for external solutions and and begin to recognize my own gifts. Does that make sense? 100%. That's what I, that's what I was, was doing. Trust myself. Yes. All the answers are within us. Everything, our subconscious, our heart knows what we need. You just, you just need to, yeah, like you said, stop distracting ourselves by in, uh, external world. And just tap into- I'll give you an example. 
and I hope this helps with your listeners too. So when I, after I had gotten, after my Lyft vehicle had been hijacked by human traffickers and I, I didn't really know what happened. I sort of, they picked me up on a Sunday. I went home and I told my husband, I just saw a man with the most evil eyes I've ever seen. And I didn't, I couldn't really frame it. By the next day, I went into shock because I, I realized I was sort of putting all the pieces together. And then, <clears throat> of course, by the time I went to the police, which is probably the worst thing you can do because they re-traumatize you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were all these things happening. And I, I did not know what to do. And so wait, what were we talking about? <laughs> wait, wait a minute. What was your... The example of uh, why you need to tap into yourself. Yes. So interesting enough. Now watch, do you see how my brain went? I got so nervous about that, that I blanked out. And mm-hmm. as survivors, that happens a lot. So I didn't know what to do. Of course, I went to Stanford University. I went to top institutions to say, I need some help. And my body started tremoring and thank God for my husband. Like the tremoring was so severe. I I was laying next to my husband in bed one night and I said, honey, can you feel the tremoring? And he put his hand on me and he said, Mike, the tremoring is not on the outside. It's on the inside. So I said, Oh, so when I went to Stanford, they wanted to medicate me. They just wanted to plow me with drugs. And I kept saying, well, wait a minute. I'm happy to take what you need, but is that solving the underlying issue? All they wanted to do is suppress it, suppress it. And I grew up with that suppression. So why would I ever want to do it again? And so for me, I had to learn to rely on myself. So I said, here are all these doctors and expert facilities, and it didn't feel right. And in my gut, I knew this was not the way to healing. So I had to find my own path. And that's when I started looking at uh, meditation and exercise and how I ate. And and, and it's a, it's a challenging road. It's, it's a challenging, uh, challenging road, but it's worth it. A hundred percent. I had a bit of different experience with my hypnotherapist. I've tried also. Psychologists, psychiatrists, psyche professionals, NLP shamans everyone you name it but the hypnotherapy really helped me she the hypnotherapy me, the hypnotherapy she took me she took me back and i've learned so many lessons from mm. every single moment what was happening to me and i came up much stronger after my hypnotherapy and i became a certified hypnotherapist because i know how it works Wow, that's amazing. It really made a huge impact on me. And it didn't do 25 years of therapy. It was pretty quick, right? It was pretty quick, but it was to the point. It was facing your trauma. I face it. And my hypnotherapist helped me to heal it. Not just open it up, but really heal it. And off the back of my hypnotherapy, I was able to tell my mom what was happening for the very first time. And I know not everyone is lucky like I I was, but she took it so beautifully. I got mm-hmm. my mom back. 
Michaeline, and bear in mind, she was so codependent on my stepfather. She would never ever tell him anything against. She was so in love with him, madly. And she just turned into a mama bear. She got so protective over me. (laughs) She nearly killed him with her own hands. And that's how she started uh, um, uh, she press the criminal charges against him. And I had to go to back to Russia. I was living in Australia at those time to testify against my perpetrator and confront everyone. Wow. Wow. And then I've realized that we, ha- we don't have any supporting facilities in my hometown, Sakhalin Island, just north of Japan, for childhood sexual abuse survivors. All you can do is go to police, but we know police is not the best place to go. And so I was thinking, what can I do? And I called the biggest magazine in my town and I said, would you be interested to publish my story? Michaeline, it went viral. And I left my email address in the article. I said, girls, if you are experiencing something similar, send me an email hundreds and hundreds of emails and i've just realized how many of us out there that are still so afraid to talk about it and i know parents would probably be not the the best people to talk with because it can be very shocking and hard to tell hard to hard to take but how was your experience when you first opened up to the world well I first opened up to you know as I was in the process of therapy I did talk to my parents about my brother and my mother actually flew out and went down so I could confront my brother Um, I think it varies I think it varies on you know there's when you talk about a support structure there's no support structure for the process we go through. So for example, my mother could have used some support, my family members, there's no, there's no system that helps support and understand the process because um, it doesn't exist. Or if, you know, in America, in, in an American judicial system, if you're abused in your family and it's reported, you are pulled from your family, right? So that in itself is another trauma. Mm-hmm. because many times the people who abuse you, you love deeply. It's not just, you know, black and 95%. White. Yes. And, and the thing is though, when you are put into foster care, your chances of being molested are three times as likely. Mm-hmm. So you're going out of the frying pan and into the fire. And it is, you know, I, I don't think we really truly understand that sexual abuse is a learned behavior. It's generational. So if you don't break the chain, it continues. And the only way to break the chain is to build a system for people to understand. So for example, those that molested me were molested, right? And so and it, it, it's really important that you get to the point where you can have compassion and forgiveness, but you can't skip over that stage of anger and, and going through it as women do again, it's like, okay, well, let me get to compassion and forgiveness because um, this is, 
the way you heal, but you can't skip a step. You can't skip that step because then you're making yourself invisible. And part of the process is learning how to be visible and speak your truth. Mm -hmm. Which is the hardest one. Yes. Yes. So, so I think it really depended. Um, I ended up confronting two of my abusers. One, I didn't, uh, and I didn't feel the need to, um, but again, I think it goes back to what you feel. No one can tell you what you should and shouldn't do on the process. It's again coming to trust yourself. Mm-hmm. Very much so. You will know what to do. That's, I'm so proud of you, honestly. And I was reading your book, The French Fry Kids, French Rice Kid where you literally transcribe the whole process, what you've gone through from the beginning to the end, which can be a system. <laughs> would, you, would you tell us more about your upcoming book? Sure, sure. So the French Fry Kid, A Warrior in Training, what I did is when I was going through therapy, I talked into a tape recorder. And so when I was healed enough, I'd laid that tape recorder down as any young woman's journal with the idea that, so let me back up for a second. When I got through the trauma of my child abuse, um, I used to speak around the country because I had two books out previously and I'd speak to groups. In fact, uh, I would have a line out the door of people who didn't care about the signature and they were sharing their abuse story for the first time. Like they actually felt after they heard me speak that they had the courage enough to speak their truth. And I remember one time, one of my co-authors was like, hurry up. And, and I'm like, I can't, these are, this is the first time they're telling their stories and speaking their truth. Right. But so I felt when I did this book that I had a responsibility because I saw so many walking wounded who didn't get on the other side. And so when I laid this journal down, my goal then and now is to find a way for survivors and their family to understand what you go through and to give you hope that you'll get out onto the other side, that it's totally possible. That's my goal. So I laid down the journal and then I hired a clinical psychologist to do progress notes so that you as a reader can say, oh, here's where I am. And here's how I get to healing. So that's sort of the, the crux of the book is helping those who've had this experience and those who've, who have loved ones who've had this experience so they can understand the process. This is so important when people do understand what the victim of sexual abuse is going through. Because this is where the hardest part, it's so much blame on the victim it's your fault for me it was i was 15 years old couldn't you understand what was happening couldn't you just jump and scream and yell and fight no i just got frozen and i i was blaming myself for 20 years why couldn't could i do anything it's not so simple it's uh, it's a protection mechanism oh yes well two two things i want to share one I mean, I, the earliest memory I have is, is, a, is eight, seven or eight, roughly. 
And it was a cousin who actually uh, had me pinned down on a bed while he was ejaculating in my mouth. And my brother was in the corner watching. I was terrified. I, I, I didn't know what was happening. I like, and, and I still blame myself. Like, oh my God, I didn't even know, like, you know, what a penis was. I just know that the action that happened to me was very violent. And for years, I, if I was near semen, I would gag. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out why until I went into those therapy sessions. And there was a whole set of memories that came out because I, I had no recollection of that experience until we dug deep into my, um, into my uh, aversion to semen. And then it was like, suddenly like, the memory came out and you could remember everything, the smell, the sights and the sounds. And it's just, your mind is so protective of you. I I think that blaming is, is what we go to as human beings. And it's also, you know, we, we also end up taking on the abuse. So blaming ourselves is a way to continue to beat ourselves down. It's we've also, we've taken on what they've given us. Does that, does that make sense? And taking a hundred percent, taking everything on. Michaeline, have you forgiven your perpetrators? Mm, it's a really good question. Yes, yes. How did you I do think, this? What helped you? I think it. Um, I confronted my brother, which was um, really important to me. It's not like. I wanted any big thing to happen. I just wanted him to acknowledge it and say he was sorry. And when he did, I could feel this relief come out of me. But then probably about, I don't know, three weeks later, he called me up and he said, you know, you weren't the only one abused. And so my confronting him actually gave enough space to him for him to start speaking up about what happened to him. Was he also abused? Yes. And I asked him, who abused you? And he said, I I don't want to say. But that was the opening when he said, you know, you weren't the only one abused. And I said, were you abused? And he said, yes. And I said, who abused you? And he said, I don't want to say. And so again, that secrecy is part of the challenge and so I forgave him I forgave my father I had a brief conversation with my cousin a few years back and he asked me we were literally sitting outside and he asked me you know why what did I do to you right and I said I remember an incident when I was eight and I left it there he didn't say anything he just sat in the chair for a while and I, I've known for many years that forgiveness is a critical part of your own healing. And if you don't forgive, you're going to get stuck. I think the harder part of the forgiveness for me was forgiving myself. And again, we're our worst critic. We're our harshest judge. And I heard that voice when you even said it. It's like, well, why didn't you do something about it? Or why didn't, you know, I was a little kid, you know, and you were too. And we don't have the wherewithal we do as we're adults and we're in a family dynamic 
that, you know, I remember thinking, oh my God, if I say something, am I going to break up my family? You know, and so, so many responsibilities lie yes, on a yes. child. Yes. And, you know, even, you know, I've had situations a couple of years ago, I went to a facility that I, I, I'd gone to, um, when, to when I need to get healthy, right? And I didn't know this at the time, but two of the massage therapists there had been basically molesting young women as they slept. And then the women would wake up stimulated and blame themselves. So there was this, there was this discussion that, oh, well, if you go to this therapist, you can get, you know, you can get stimulated. And it was, again, the way that it was presented by different people. So I went to the, this masseuse, not thinking about any of this. I just went to masseuse there and I woke up with him inappropriately touching me. And so I left, told the staff, and he got fired. But then I started hearing about all the people who knew this was going on for so long. And the guests got very angry at me. He's a single dad of two young daughters. How could you do this to him? Seriously? Oh, yeah. Like- Seriously. Seriously. And it, it's, I think that's part of the challenge we have is like people were upset at me for speaking the truth, by the way, protecting these kids. Imagine being a young girl and you're going in there and that happens. You know how much blame you put on yourself and just the ignorance, the pure ignorance of the situation. Um, So yeah, we have a long way to go. You know what? The trauma keeps the score and you need seven generations before and seven generations after for trauma to disappear. If you're not doing anything at this point, how do you think healing your trauma impacts your kid's life? Mm. My singular goal when having kids was to break the chain. I wanted to make sure that they didn't have that experience. And thank God that I'm aware of none of them did. However, I will tell you that I think trauma on this magnitude, we can't afford seven generations. We have to figure out ways because I think there's a systemic suppression that happens from this abuse. And it affects women. Now, I'll say it affects women far more in numbers than men, but I will say that male numbers are much higher than what we record because there's even a double standard where, you know, oh, well, you're a guy, you're supposed to enjoy it. And that's just not how it's experienced. So I think we have a lot of work to do. And I don't like there's a, I often think about, I often think about people like, um, I won't say his name. (laughs) He owns a major NFL team and, uh, he's gotten busted, uh, for a number of things in this area. And because of his money and his power, he's always bought his way out of it. And because our laws protect children under 18, those same laws protect perpetrators. So when he got in trouble, well, let's just say he got in trouble with underage girls, those details weren't released. Even though if you're on the ground, like lots of activists, you know the real stories. 
So many of us knew when he got in trouble with underage, uh, what do they call it? He was at a, um, what do they call it? Basically, he was caught uh, having sex with someone. Um, most of us knew that he'd been caught having sex with an underage girl who didn't speak English and thought she was getting food. Unbelievable. And literally what I want to do is my hope is people like this will start saying, oh my God, I have got to start speaking up. I've got to start changing so that I can model a different behavior. That's my fantasy. But do I want to wring his neck? Do I want to call him out? Yeah, and he's going to have a, you know, a, a line of lawyers coming after me. And it's so devastating because for some reason, it's not only this, this story. This is my, my dream, Michael, mm. when every single child will start speaking up, every single woman, every single victim will start speaking up. When they stop being afraid of anything, imagine the perpetrators. They would think twice, three times, 10 times if they knew they will be uncovered at some point. I bet you the number of sexual abuse will decrease. Any, any abuse, physical and emotional and mental as well. And it's happening every, every time. Even in Zimbabwe, when you were recording yes. a wonderful movie, Fresh Water Heaven. The movie from Zimbabwe is called Tapestries of Hope. Tapest Tapestries of Hope. Freshwater Haven was a not-for-profit, I had. Yes, apologies. No, no, it's okay. Even then, they throw you in a... Uh, they, they lock you down for revealing this information. What was happening? What were you going through? When it happened? I remember, and, and, and this struck a nerve when you were talking about trauma in seven generations. So uh, when I was thrown in prison there, I was there with my assistant, uh, her and I, we were the only white women in a co-ed overcrowded prison. And they, uh, you never quite know. I mean, you know, this was, you know, feces laden floor. I got urinated on. I saw someone raped. I mean, you know, it was a pretty horrific experience. Um, and I was trying to protect my assistant too, because she was much younger and I felt incredible guilt. Like she, I didn't want her in this situation. But I remember we were in this, about the size of a bathroom, like a five by eight cell. And they had allowed me to bribe them enough so that we could have a closed area. Um, and there was a group of women in there with us. And I remember thinking that I thought I'd been doing such good work, but here I was in a cell in Zimbabwe and I could leave my kids without their mother. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, how incredibly selfish of me. And interesting, too, when, when we got out and we were deported to South Africa, I remember getting on the phone with my family. We had not told the boys about what had happened until we got, we got out. And my oldest boy was like, mom, mom, I hear you can't go to Africa anymore. <laughs> he thought it was very cool. I said, well, no, honey, just Zimbabwe and maybe South Africa. And the one that we didn't 
think it affected was our two and a half year old, right? So fast forward a few years, um, when he was in kindergarten, he went through severe uh, separation anxiety. Mm. And so we brought him to a therapist and we started working through it. And at the culmination of that therapy, he drew a picture of his mom in prison. And he said, I don't want her to go back to jail. Wow. Two and a half. And so, so there are lots of traumas that we experience in life. And so I think we've got to find a better way, whether it's sexual abuse or, you know, even within my own work, I think I've impacted my kids. Um, we've got to find a quicker way to get through some of these. It's like one thing comes after another, after another, after another. And you know what, Michaelin, there will be always challenging situations that can be a traumatic for us. I yes. think most important is to learn how to deal with them, how to process them. Most important to be brave and courageous. And now what I've gone through, six years of systematic rape, uh, raped, two forced abortions, 15 consecutive miscarriages, including two ectopic pregnancies, one nearly climbed my life. I'm like, you know what? Bring it on. I don't afraid of anything right now. I went through the hell, so nothing can kill me right now. And I think this is the most important mindset when you stop being a victim and start being a victory. And what I'm saying, I'm turning my trauma into my superpower. Mm. Yes, it can destroy our life. Yes, it can take our power away. Yes, it can do a lot of damage. But now I realize it doesn't have to be this way. Our trauma can be a really great source of inspiration for transformation, for self-care, healing. And that's what I'm trying to, this is my message. Take your trauma and make it your biggest superpower. I think what you're saying too is so critical because I think that that was my own journey is that take those traumas and develop a resiliency. And that superpower is learning how to take care of yourself first. That is the single most critical thing is it's like part of abuse. Part of the challenge with abuse is you become so marginalized, so victimized and so invisible. The healing, the healing is becoming visible. And, and refusing to be invisible anymore. That's a really wonderful advice. Because you were also threatened in Zimbabwe that if you won't leave the country, you will be killed or you will be raped. Yes, that's correct. And, then, and when you came back to America, you were experiencing some challenges to get this movie out to the world. And... How Hillary Clinton helped you in this journey? So I think that, how did Hillary Clinton help me in this journey? I think that uh, I had been, 
I, I, I'd been exposed to her by an event locally and literally I shared with her what was happening in Zimbabwe and we were standing in line for something and she pulled me out of the line and she said, come, I need to talk to you. And so she pulled me out of the line and brought me to Huma Abedin and she said, please take your information. I want to know what's happening in Zimbabwe and I want to help. She gets a bad reputation and, you know, truthfully, I don't know all the ins and outs, but I will tell you from my experience, she's probably one of the single best public servants we've ever had is because, and I say that from watching her, like I'd be at an event and someone would ask a question about something. And when she'd be done talking, she'd immediately make a beeline for them to find out what the situation was and how she could help. And so that, that was my experience with her. I do know that when there were issues involving Zimbabwe, when she was, her staff would reach out to me to get, to see if I had current information. But, you know, it was really interesting. When I came back from Zimbabwe, I went and walked Capitol Hill to talk about the rape of virgins to cure AIDS. And I went door to door, senator to senator. And I'm like, okay, look at they're raping babies. We've got to do something. And it was so fascinating to realize that complete disconnect with our government, truly. Because again, I was going and I was a little naive and I go to a senator's office and they'd say, oh, okay, that's horrible. But did you see China there? And I'd go to the next senator and they'd be like, oh, that's horrible. You're right. Did you see China there? And after about the fifth office I went through, and I'm like, why is everyone asking me about China? And I realized, and China was in Zimbabwe. Um, in fact, most of the military equipment and guns and machinery were Chinese and were helmed by many Chinese. And of course, I wasn't involved in the politics to know enough. This was a strategic question on China and in their investment in Africa. But I was, you know, I wasn't up here talking about, you know, long-term politics. I was down here seeing all these little babies who've been raped to cure AIDS. And so it was, it was a remarkable lesson. In fact, part of that is I even gone to a, another Senator who insisted that I basically give up Betty McConey, who's the activist they said, look, we need to tell this story. And I said, we well, have to tell it in a certain way so that she doesn't get hurt. And they said, well, sometimes you have to sacrifice one for all. And I'm like, no, there are very few activists. I, I literally was on my way. CNN had asked me to come interview with them. And they sent a car to come to, with me. And I was going to talk about the movie. And on the way, I got a call from one of Betty's people who said, you can't do this interview or Betty will die. And so I turned around and went home. Now, that's me. I couldn't have lived with myself if anything happened to Betty or someone like that who's on the front lines. Why people can watch this movie? You know, um, it's not showing anymore. I can give you the link to put into the podcast if that will help. Um, I'm happy to share the movie. If we can do this, that would be amazing. That would be Absolutely. amazing. I watched this movie. It's it's must watch. 
You've done such an amazing job. Thank you. Thank you. Michaeline, I'm aware of uh, the time, even though it goes so fast. <laughs> Where people can find you? I think it'll be easier once a new book is out mm-hmm. um, and our new series is out. Um, but I think uh, you can, they can go to uh, michaeline.com. And if they want to write me a note or something, I'm, I'll respond. Amazing. And uh, do you have any concluding thoughts before we go? Well, I want to thank you for your own courage. I think every one of us standing up, it's like every one of us standing up will get, get us there faster. And I'm, you know, I think my, my imagination and my fantasy is like yours is I want to see all of us stand up in our strength and our power and say, no, say, no, I'm not going to keep silent anymore. No, this is not okay to happen anymore. So I thank you. Because of uh, people like you, Michaeline, I have this energy and I have this courage to keep going. Thank you so much for all your support. I appreciate you and I love you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael and Grizzly. Thank you for being here. I know it's not easy, but there is a part of you who is ready to take this journey all the way, and I can help. Reach out to me directly at Anna at AnnaMadeNova.com to get work. You can also connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn for more healing stories and magic. This journey isn't possible to do on your own. So make sure to like, subscribe, and review the podcast so we can help more people like you. If you have someone in your life who is struggling to overcome their trauma, this is something you can give them that truly can change the course of their life forever. We'll see you next time for another episode of the World's Best Trauma Recovery Podcast. And just remember... You are able to help yourself and you can do it right now.